again! Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both Argyle and The Beekeeper. Joining me today, it's our espionage correspondence. First, he just finished purchasing a see-through backpack for his cat. It's Daniel Lima. Daniel, how's it going? It's going wonderfully, and there is an idea. <laughs> and uh, and also joining us, if he ever has to choose between being or not being, I think he chooses being. It's Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, you know, actually, I'm thinking about getting a haircut sometime this week. And you know how everybody's been asking for the Travis Kelsey? Mm. I, in fact, will be going against the uh, current trend. I'll be asking for the Aubrey Argyle instead. Uh, I thought you were gonna. I, th- I, th- I thought you were gonna ask for the uh, the Aiden because Sam Rockwell has some stuff going on with his hair in the first part of that movie. Uh, but we will start with Argyle. Uh, as much as it pains us to do so, <laughs> it is the it is the newest film from Matthew Vaughn. His first non Kingsman movie since like I think X Men, right? The first class or something like that. It's Kick been Ass a while. I, 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 I forgot he directed that. Actually, yeah, wow. yeah. yeah I, I don't think he directed Kick Ass Two. Maybe maybe he did. No, um, I don't think he, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, to his credit, I guess he he didn't write this movie, but uh, he uh, he certainly uh, you know, is is the guy that has the power to get it made with a two hundred million dollar budget. Allegedly, I don't know where 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 did it go? I don't know. Just all these cameos. <laughs> Who knows? We'll just say that you know, again, like I said before, spy movie uh, is an author named Ellie Conway who uh, writes spy thrillers. She's a very big deal in this world. One day when she's on a train, she gets stopped by uh, this other guy that actually claims to be a spy and says he's protecting. He's played by Sam Rockwell. His name is Aiden, says he's protecting her from a dangerous organization that wants to kill her because her novels seem to be predicting the future and possibly following all their plans. And he needs to come with her to put an end to this organization. It's called The Division. And that just takes them on a just a whole globetrotting thing that uh, introduces them to a bunch of people. But we're also like throughout, we're privy to like, you know, little snippets of these characters from her book. They're uh, Argyle himself, played by Henry Cavill and other folks, including uh, Dua Lipa and John Cena pop up, who are really actually not in the movie that much for anyone that, you know, got excited by that marketing. I'll spoil, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, Daniel, I'm going to start with you because I, I just know because I've talked about the Kingsman movies with Fred a little bit before, and I just threw some letterbox stalking. I know that you're not quite as big on those movies as I am. And uh, I mean, I think you were probably curious to talk about this one because, you know, uh, you know, professional obligation. You feel like you're one of the we're, we're kind of the guys that talk about the spy movies here. Uh, but like, I'm curious, like as someone that's maybe not as big on the Kingsman movies is when you were seeing this, was it purely out of like, all right, it's a spy movie. I've been on the rewind for spy movies. I'm going to talk about the spy movie. Or is there a version of this movie that like you could have actually seen yourself enjoying? Well, having seen the trailer, no, there's no version of this movie. <laughs> that Having seen the trailer a thousand and one times, my God, it played in front of everything. I expect that when I go to see Zone of Interest, they're going to have an Argyle ad. Oh, I'm going to hear yeah. Suspicious Minds playing again. But here's the thing. Uh, I'm not a huge Matthew Vaughn head. I really hated The King's Man. Did not like Kingsman 2. <laughs> I like Kingsman 1. I liked X-Men First Class. I liked Kick-Ass. But I did see those when I was like a teenager. So like, you know, who's to say whether if I return to them. But in any case, he's a guy who is known as like an action director, mostly because of his collaborations with the recently deceased Brad Allen. And, uh, you know, Kingsman, hey, you've got the church shootout. You know, that's an iconic action set piece from the past 10 years so colin firth in that pub yeah yeah so i'm gonna go in to see it i knew that i was gonna go in to see it even though every time i saw the ad i i died a little inside (laughs) died a little inside yeah that's a good way to put it and well it's not good but it's also not good in like an interesting way it's i i have i had to write a review for this 
And getting to 500 words was a trial because I kind of just wanted to write it's bad 500 times. Hmm. Oh, 250. Fred, did you have any more? Uh, did you did you have any more of a um, nuanced reaction to it than uh, Daniel did, or was it pretty similar? Because I I think I'm pretty much in the Daniel book. Yeah, I will offer a one defense for this movie that applies to me personally, mm-hmm. and that is that I coincidentally watched Poor Things the night before. Which is just an awful movie to have to follow up, uh, given that it's probably going to, I hope, win the Oscar for Best Production Design. So you have this really creative, <laughs> inventive movie that's just beautiful looking like one of the you know, most imaginative uh, creations of 2023. And then the following day, I see a movie like Argyle that just reminds me of the kind of stuff that gets $200 million and just doesn't make anything out of it. This is a money laundering scheme. That's the only explanation <laughs> I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we can go into detail here, but I mean, one of the first things that I noticed is was there like even a single memorable, distinctive location in the entire movie? I mean, no. imagine some of the yeah, imagine some of the big spy franchises of the last decades. I mean, the Bond movies. For as much as I don't necessarily love the way that they've taken those. There are always like great establishing shots in the Bond movies. Like you know where those scenes are taking place. They take advantage of the locations for the action set pieces. You could even make an argument that the Fast and Furious franchise still does that, even though those movies have their own issues as well. Same with Mission Impossible. I could just go down the list. Argyle, if you ask me right now and put a gun to my head to give you a single location, except maybe London, uh, where this movie took place, I'm not sure I could give a satisfying answer. And that's kind of alarming. You know what's funny about that is I think the London sequence was like the worst part of the movie too. In competition with all the others. Sure, sure. But like, it was like, you know, you know, like we're going to do, I, I fell asleep during a very integral part of the beekeeper, which we'll talk about in, in a little while. But like, I've just, it's been a problem I've had. It's really been like, I mean, again, it's a first world problem, but it's just like, I, I work long hours. I wake up early every day. Like if, if I go to an eight o'clock movie, you know, there's a chance I might like doze off for a second. And then I have to decide how I'm going to go find the parts of the movie that I might've missed without having to drive another 30 minutes to a theater. It's, it's been a thing. Zone <clears throat> of interest. <clears throat> uh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, but the thing, the thing is here, I fell asleep, but it was like, I saw this movie at like 11, like at like one o'clock on a Saturday. It wasn't like, I was like, it wasn't like for lack of sleep. And, and like for a movie with like this much mo- for like this much money and this many things happening on screen, like you shouldn't be like bored to sleep. And I definitely fell asleep for like, five minutes during that London section. It felt like they were like canvassing this that safe house or whatever they had to go to. I was like awake for like the first five minutes they were in that house. And I kept like dozing off for like another five minutes. And I woke up again. They're still just like puttering around in that house. Like it just took forever. And I like, Man, I, re- I, I don't even remember what house you're talking about. It was this, like a safe house, this, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. This movie. Yeah. It's a series of, of safe houses and hallways that look really really cheap like there's again like this movie has an alleged 200 million dollar budget i i thought it was a covid shoot i remember i left the theater i saw it with our friend jb and i was like well i think this movie will probably be a hit like you know or probably make back its money it costs like what 50 million dollars and he was like no no 200 million i was aghast uh that's that's incredible they're somebody was siphoning some shit off but yeah like there's it's just a series of of random locations that just feel very drab that don't feel very high tech like even bond like you know when you know i think back to like uh, skyfall the hong kong sequence where like bond is like fighting in like an empty skyscraper or like the killer this past year you know we're in an empty we work building and those locations they do have a feel like they do have a personality to them uh they exist in a time and place that 
you know, is recognizably that, you know, there's an identity. None of that here. It's only notable in the absence of, of anything discernible within them. Oh, side note, I, I do want to point out, though, that um, I like the fact that uh, it starts off in, like, London, right? And then we go to... Arabia? Yeah, I, I like that for Arabia. They just said the Arabian Peninsula. Like, London, that's a city. <laughs> yeah. But then the Arabian Peninsula, and they go to some sultan's palace in the middle of the desert because to Matthew Vaughn, that is Arabia. I will say the funniest one was that like weird suburban neighborhood where her parents live and it just says Chicago on the screen. <laughs> and it's just, wait a minute. This could have been like any random ass neighborhood here in the United States in any city. And you decided to go with Chicago out of all places. Doesn't make no damn sense. It reminds yeah. me of the, it reminds me of like the establishing shot of Pensacola, Florida in the last Godzilla movie. Uh, I think I'll have to share that with you guys. That, 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 that was one of the hardest times I've, uh, I laughed it harder at that though than I did at anything in, uh, in Argyle. I, oof. uh, rather than trying to talk about this movie, like through plot points and stuff. Cause I think so many of those probably escape us at the moment. Let me ask you, Daniel, is there any actor that escaped from this movie with their dignity? No, <laughs> like, like none of them are like bad necessarily, but the material just, just isn't very good you said let's not get bogged down by the plot points and you know why bother however um i do want to say that i think where the where the movie really goes off the rails is in the script so like it's the basic sort of like oh this regular human being gets pushed into this spy world that she's only dreamed about right and we've talked about how visually that dream doesn't amount to very much but also just like they're chasing after a MacGuffin, we don't know really what it what it's for. Like they're against this evil organization, we don't know its goals. It reminds me kind of of like the bad Bond movies. We have no investment in these characters or this world, and then we're just thrust into it. It's pretty boring, and then it starts like twisting in on itself in ways that I assume Matthew Vaughn like is like really enamored with like he thinks that he's really pulling one over on the audience by revealing that never this is her dad except it's not her dad and she's argyle spoilers people even though just deadline like it turns out that the whole oh, yeah. who is argyle ad campaign is premised on like something that was revealed when the movie was announced yeah did you guys expect that like that would be like a real twist i wasn't I mean, surprised but like i don't think i paid enough attention to any of the actual press coverage to really know what you're talking about either really right, so i yeah. yeah no so i knew no that was like treated as like the big major twist of the movie who is the real agent Arga? i think it's even the last line in the trailer mm -hmm. so yeah. that is really the message that they want to sell you on and yeah i saw the same tweet like two days before i saw the movie so i knew <laughs> what was going to happen and somehow it was even dumber in the actual movie <laughs> than I suspected. And people in my row actually turned over to me because I face palmed so loudly that <laughs> they think, I think they were actually concerned about what was going on. <laughs> yeah, no, like it turns out that Argyle is her, which I had considered and I dismissed because I was like, well, that's that's just too obvious for as smarmy and smug and self-satisfied as someone like Matthew Vaughn is in his like kind of meta ironic, like, you know, the Kingsman movies run on this sort of energy. 
I just don't think that he would do something quite, quite so obvious. And uh, yeah, it turns out that he just did the most obvious fucking thing, which should have been just kind of the basis of the foundation of the movie. Like, here is a woman who should be a super spy, but isn't. But instead, it comes halfway through the movie, too late to make anything that we just saw justified. And then she immediately sort of falls back into being like a super spy. So it doesn't even do anything with that twist. And then there's like five other twists that come after because then it turns out she was part of the bad guys. But then the bad guys she turned on, I guess, somewhere along the line. And also Ariana DeBose is still alive, who we didn't even realize was a real character until like (laughs) 10 minutes ago. And, you know, it's just like you're staring at the screen like, do am I supposed to... I mean, I know I'm not supposed to care about any of this, but I'm supposed to find this entertaining because I don't. One of the things that, like, I think should have felt entertaining to me, but, like, the thing with, like, the the uh, knives turning into ice skates, skating on oil, killing a bunch of dudes, like, oh like I, I was, like, too, I don't know, it was weird. I got held up. My the big hold up for me in that scene was, like, wait, like, in what way did she actually do this? You know, like, I, I, I know that's, like, a, a stupid thing to get hung up on with all the stupid things in this movie, but I was like, wait, so, like, she was just able to, like, perfectly slide the knife onto the shoe and it's just staying in place i was like <laughs> look I feel like that's one of those things that like if the movie were fun you'd go like whatever yeah, it's awesome yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the movie's not fun mm-hmm. i guess th- we could talk a little bit about the action right how would you guys think because you know like i said kingsman had some good action so th- do you think this stands up it's kind of a simple opinion but i feel like it's and, and not a unique one but i feel like it is a little hamstrung by the pg-13 thing like, I think Kingsman just kind of gets a lot of mileage out of, like, you know, pushing the envelope on that stuff. And here it's just like, it, it feels, it just feels very uninspired by comparison to that or even to something like The Beekeeper, which did have an R rating and was able to go a little bit further on that kind of thing. It's like, here it's, I, I just very, very little of it, like, kind of stuck out to me. I mean, it's like, I, I remember like the ice skating, but I don't really remember much about what they were doing besides just like stabbing some dudes and shooting some dudes and, in, in like the scene with all the paint, the colorful gas or whatever, like oh, I, you, you can't actually see anything that's happening. And that's supposed to be one of the bigger scenes. Like, I don't know. I feel like some of the more memorable scenes didn't actually have any that like anything that memorable in terms of like any kind of combat or gunplay. It also tries way too hard to make the action funny. That's the other problem. Oh, God. Because, yeah. I, oh. Right. Because, I mean, as much as. Because well, that's a strain more to do it when you can't rely on like some like rated R type images. Right. But I mean, I have a slightly higher opinion of the Kingsman than you do, Daniel, because there is, there's a good action scene in the, in the trenches where they are, they can't make noise because they can't pull out their guns. So they have to resort to a night fight in no man's land. And that's like a pretty good, gritty, well-filmed action scene. But in this one, everything is just so intent on being comical and humorous and the laughs just don't come. Everybody in my showing was just kind of sitting there dumbstruck. And then you have that Beatles song playing over it, which I'm sure cost them $50 million to license. And that was mm. a huge amount of the budget. Ah, there's, there's, there we go. Yeah. And it's just insane because I just don't understand why you need that over-reliance on CGI in these big action set pieces. Especially when Matthew Vaughn has made some pretty good, decent action set pieces before that weren't as overly dependent on that. And that's where I think a lot of fun action set pieces come from. And they're fun because you can appreciate the work that went into them, as opposed to being so flashy that you can barely even tell what's going on anymore. Yeah, no, the last couple action set pieces where it's very CG dominated, I, I fucking hated that. Like the CG smoke, and like I'm like, like what, $200 million, you couldn't afford real fucking smoke, you mm-hmm. know? You couldn't get a smoke machine on set. 
um, you know, you watch the kind of like uh, the ice skating thing and it's like it's CG oil that she's skating on. And it's like it just looks floaty and fake. It doesn't look like anything's got a tactile feel, which I, I don't think that's a problem of the R rating necessarily. Um, I think that it's just, you know, Matthew Vaughn having, I think, relied a little bit too much on Brad Allen's capabilities as an action director. And I guess it went to his head. And now that Brad Allen has, you know, sadly deceased, I, I think that he just kind of took the reins a little bit more. And the, the results speak for themselves. You also have in the early part of the film, one of the conceits that make no fucking sense and isn't very funny is that Bryce Dallas Howard keeps on imagining her vision of Argyle oh, like yeah. fighting. And like that impacts the action because it's breaking up the action scene mm-hmm. so that like, you know, in what it'll be like Sam Rockwell fighting who, by the way, side note, Sam Rockwell, does he not look like Luke Wilson? Because um, I watched this entire movie thinking it was Luke Wilson. I didn't have that thought at all. Really? Yeah. Wow. I was under that impression until I was driving back with JB and he said, oh yeah, Sam Rockwell in that one scene. And I'm like, wait, Sam Rockwell? But yeah, so he you know, he keeps on in the middle of the action, kind of like she'll blink and then see it's actually Henry Cavill. It just breaks up the rhythm of the action, you know what I mean? In a way that like, you know, say what you will about like, everything else going on in the Kingsman movies, but I do think that there's like a continuous kind of propulsive momentum going on through those long takes that I think were kind of like a game changer, like the really undercranked feel of those scenes and everything. Like there's like an uninterrupted energy going on. And like Mm -hmm. here, it's just consistently cutting in on itself, you know, robbing itself of any sort of impact. And the other thing is Kingsman does a much better job of generating laughs via intelligent Anything. and self-aware oh, humor. Yes. Yeah. There's because that. the There's thing that. about Kingsman is, I think it's a very good parody of that like British poshness where they insist on being super well-dressed even as they violently kill people. It's mm-hmm. that whole mindset of, we need to go to a bespoke tailor and we need to get our fancy suits and then we're going to travel somewhere on the other side of the world and kill a, kill a bad guy. And I think Matthew Bond does a good job harnessing that energy out of the Kingsman movies, especially in the first one. And it's really unfortunate because ever since the Bond franchise decided to go all gloomy and tortured soul and abandon this idea of British self-aware humor, there's a bit of a vacancy that another franchise could potentially fill. And the first Kingsman did a pretty good job with that. And Argyle, I mean, they could have in theory tried to fill that spot as well. And I even was semi-hopeful during the opening scene because Henry Cavill, I mean, shitty haircut or not, like <laughs> he's played that kind of role before. I actually like the man from Uncle. Same, and that, likewise. Yeah, exactly. So he has experience with this type of part and John Cena fits right in as well, obviously. You say it's taking itself too seriously or, if it's just, or is it just not funny? I just don't think that the humor works. Hmm. I think the humor yeah. works in the opening scene because it, you have the right people in the right roles. I mean, Dua Lipa is not an actress, obviously, but she is a really stunning woman of the kind that the Bond franchise always cast in these types of roles. And then again, John Cena, he's like the perfect casting choice for this sidekick who's mostly just the muscles. Henry Cavill, once again, even if the haircut doesn't work, is the dashing (laughs) spy who just smiles and is able to charm any woman within five seconds. That also works. But then the movie obviously pivots to the Bryce Dallas Howard and Sam Rockwell scenes and never really comes back to that. And I know that that's obviously the premise of the movie, that you have this writer who's a super spy and she tries to go back to her old life. I get that that is the premise and I hate criticizing a movie for not being the movie that I wanted it to be. 
But at the same time, when you give us a taste of what the movie could have potentially been during the first few minutes, and it's just a better version of what we actually got, then I have to ask myself, why did you lure people to the movie theater teasing us with this movie when that's never really what we got ultimately? Well, Jernavoy had asked if uh, this movie's problem was that if it took things too seriously or if it just wasn't funny. I would argue both Mm -hmm. Um, in a way. First off, yeah, I don't find this humor very, very funny or pleasant. I think that this movie is very enamored with the idea that it is taking this sort of like spy genre conventions and like kind of making like ironic like, you know, oh, well, (laughs) can you believe that we're pointing out these things that happen in these sorts of stories? And, you know, in 2024, the Kingsman movies have been going on for 10 years and, you know, spy comedies have existed since probably before Bond. And yeah, I just I'm not very impressed by that. But beyond that, I do think that I I was thinking this and we're going to get to Beekeeper in a second. But like, I I do think that with these sorts of movies, there's a fine line between kind of being self-aware and acknowledging the sort of inherent silliness of the premise and just kind of doing the thing and commenting on the fact that you're doing the thing. You know what Hmm. I mean? I mean, I I asked the question if I thought it took itself too seriously. I think it's trying to be, I think it wants to be a movie that like is smart enough to comment on what it's doing, but it's just. I think that with a movie like this, like I think the beekeeper actually does successfully do. I think there still needs to be some amount of weight to what is happening in some way like whether the emotional the emotions of the characters like there needs to be some personal stake for them or you need to give the villains like an actual sort of like make the villains seem like really dastardly like i mean kingsman one the church set piece is a kind of realization of the villains goals in a very stark detail you know in like five minutes you see this whole group of people who yeah are unpleasant people but they tear each other apart in gratuitous fashion and there you can see that is what this guy intends to do with the entire world and that's a bad thing you know, you look at the division here. I don't know. I genuinely don't know what Brian Cranston wants to do in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's the goal of this evil organization? Even what's his name? Um, the fucking the fucking guy who shouldn't have won Best Actor, who was the villain in the last Bond movie, Rami Malek. Rami Malek. Even Rami Malek. Like, as nebulous as his goals are, like at least I remember, like there was a thing about like he was going to release a virus into the world. I don't even think if you put a gun to my head, I cannot tell you what the division was doing in argyle yeah exactly so like it's just it's just coasting on the idea that isn't it audacious of those kind of of those kind of syndicates like y'all know these people are up to some shit yeah 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 isn't it audacious of us to just kind of like have one of these things here like in the supposedly real world and like no it's not i don't care i have another question for you guys do you think samuel l jackson really wanted to catch that basketball game the day of the shooting and (laughs) they just had to put it on for him while he's sitting in his lair waiting for news to come in because there's literally a scene of him just sitting there for 10 minutes watching a freaking basketball game yeah like i i I don't know what that adds i can't i I can't remember if there was some tie-in that it had to the to the other the larger plot no no, um, no, he was no, just, he was watching just a waiting game. for like the file to come through, and you keep cutting back to this guy sitting in his nice like mansion in France, just watching that basketball game. Which, <laughs> by the way, like they're at the end, like you know, they're trying to send the file over, and yeah, like I said, there's no sense of stakes or anything like that. But this one was really egregious to me because it's like the movie ends with them 
killing the entire division in their headquarters. And then she sends the file. And I'm like, what's the point? You just killed everybody. Like, you solved the problem. Yeah, you solved the problem. So now I'm supposed to cheer because, but that's because it ultimately is sort of just the thing that it's supposedly mocking you know what i mean in the same way that like deadpool will clap itself on the back for acknowledging oh there's like a way that superheroes land isn't that kind of crazy that we're we're just pointing it out no it's not because you just it's a conventional movie otherwise it also treats the reveal that the lair is on a container ship as a big deal i'd honestly forgotten that we never knew where exactly their lair was so then when no- they step out and it just, the camera like pans back and you see that it's on a container ship in the Whoa. middle of the ocean. I was like, oh, Can you, okay, I guess. Isn't this crazy? I mean, yeah, I didn't, oh. didn't even realize that that was still a question that needed to be answered. Which again ties back to the very first thing I said. There's just absolutely no like coherent way for them to establish locations in this movie. Nope, no sense of place. I thought of like, because a lot of people criticize like they thought that the vineyard looked like CGI. But like, I, it, it, it made me think of like one of the one of the sets or it, maybe it wasn't even a set. Maybe they just repurposed some old CGI. But like, it, may, it reminded me of like one of the settings from Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. I don't know if either of you guys saw that movie. And I, I saw like, it. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, maybe that's like same. Maybe that's like Samuel L. Jackson's like European European estate, and he just like wants people to film shit there. I don't know, but like, <laughs> I, but like, I, I, that, that was what I thought of when I saw that. I was, just, it was just very strange. I'm like, yeah, maybe Samuel L. Jackson has been chilling in this like extra room on this like vineyard for the last like five years since they filmed that other movie. Uh, but like, I, I asked you the question earlier, like, who, if I thought if you thought anyone escaped with their dignity, Daniel, and I didn't disagree with your answer, but like, the two people I was probably like most disappointed with were honestly probably like. Richard E. Grant and, and Samuel L. Jackson. And I know I know you really hated Saltburn, but it's like I, I kind of get why Richard E. Grant would say yes to like working with Emerald Fennel on something like that in theory. But it's like, what, what do you need this for, Richard E. Grant? Like you got like, like I think you need to like see yourself as being better than something like this. And while Samuel L. Jackson never really says no to a paycheck, it's like I feel like there's usually like a little more to whatever he's doing. And this seemed like especially just like mailing it in. To that I say – Richard E. Grant was in this movie. I share the same sentiment, but like I, I actually learned he was in it when I was listening to a podcast earlier, and I was like, "Wow!" Like, so you you said yes to this for like a part that was like that unmemorable. Though maybe it's better for him that it was unmemorable. I don't know, mm. but like it, it was just like, man, like they got so many people to be in this thing, and like maybe they really had to pay him to show up, and that's where all the money went. Maybe it went to the Beatles song. I, here's I don't the thing. Know. Here's the thing. I, I think the Beatles song probably cost more because I mean, look, yeah, you got Dua Lipa, but she's in one scene, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Ariana DeBose, two scenes, you know, Richard E. Grant, apparently we didn't even know he was in the movie. Uh, Yeah. So like, I I just, I just can't imagine who was Rob Delaney in this. He was like one of like Brian Cranston's like underlings. Oh, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you've got all these people, but they're, Uh, oh, were you, so like, were, were you surprised by the Brian Cranston twist at all? Uh, like, actually I'll say this. This is one of those things. Like I thought that it was an interesting complication. Like, okay, so she actually is kind of closer to this spy world than she realizes. Like, you know, all right, if the villain is her dad, that means going against family. It seems to be the one thing that kind of keeps her rooted in the world. Where do, And then immediately it's like, okay, well, that's not, that's not her dad. Like immediately you think about it for a second and you're like, okay, well, if that was her dad, he would just invite her to dinner and then ask, well, what are your thoughts on the new book? You know, there would be no need for this. So like, Within like half a second, I was already like, all right, so this this is going to amount to nothing. And it doesn't. So, hmm. Uh, any, any other thoughts, Fred? Uh, the ending slash mid credit scene. We haven't gone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, God. Um, 
I guess we're never going to find out because there's no way this movie is going to make its money back, so there's not going to be a sequel. Well, but the thing is, it's, a, it's an to, Apple movie. It, no, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's in the Kingsman universe. They can like work this stuff into a Kingsman movie, which is like, you know, uh, a little bit still stronger from an IP, like potential perspective. Like they could do like, I guess that's back, true. Yeah. Backdoor, backdoor Argyle some, against Adolf something. Hitler. That's the multiple. <laughs> right Did you see the Kingsman, Daniel? Yeah. Okay. So you, you remember, you, so you remember that the, like you remember that they teased yeah. Hitler? Oh yeah, I do remember. <laughs> I do remember. Um, and the thing is, I remember the Kingsman. I will say that if there's anything kind I have to say about Argyle, it's that it probably is like the least toxic out of all of his movies. Like the Kingsman, I watch and I'm like, I can't believe that his take on World War One it was. Isn't it a shame that? these monarchies are falling all around us like that's his take like he is a man who just loves power dude's a fascist like i'll say that but this movie it lacks any clear politics because i mean it lacks any clear anything it's a nothing burger of a movie and it's a nothing burger that's over two hours long i don't even understand the mid-credits scene to be honest with you like that's the young Argyle, but it's the young Henry Cavill Argyle, and he's being signed on to, like, the Kingsman. So, like, there's a real Argyle, I guess, but there is... I don't even fuck. I don't care is the thing. I also just don't care. I will say my one last note is uh, CGI cat bullshit. Like, I don't like that. I don't, see, I, 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 I don't see cats enough to have, like, even picked up on that. It was a CGI okay. cat. I could, and, I mean, for $200 million, you could have gotten a real Scottish fold and put it in the <laughs> hands of Bryce Dallas Howard. Like, I get that, like, you're not going to have a real cat, you know, flying through the air or jumping at people. Not with that attitude. <laughs> but, like, there is a scene where, like, you know, they're they're just feeding the cat on, like, a kitchen counter or something, and it's a fake cat. Like, come on. Like, I know cats aren't easy to work with. But you know what's not easy to work with? $200 million. You know, figure it out. That, that's as good a note to end on as I am. They cheaped out on the cat. I, 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 I don't really have any <laughs> other thoughts. It was just a, it was just an all-around, like, you know, disappointing experience because I, I actually do like a lot of other Matthew Vaughn things. And uh, everyone can find an actor, at least an actor or two in this that they would like to, in theory, see be in something that, you know, is a spy movie. But uh, this just wasn't it, guys. Um Let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk about a different kind of spy. Let's talk about the Beekeeper. The uh, Keeper is the uh, newest film from David Ayer, who, like, I mean, honestly, like a guy I used to be really fond of with, and he was just kind of out in the abyss for a while. And fair to say, he's kind of back now, in my opinion. Uh, we'll Hell see. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I mean, it was. I mean, look, I actually kind of, I actually like Fury decently the one time I saw it, and it's been a, a like a barren ten years for him, including Suicide Squad and bright and the tax collector which i did not i did not the last two of which i did not even see because i was just like Ugh. Was like, hey, oh, i like rough. bright oh okay i mean oh, i'm a bright truther well there's your contrarian truth that wasn't there for argyle i guess uh <laughs> you know and just a max landis fanboy over here uh you know <laughs> the uh i so the, the beekeeper honestly more important than david air though it is a jason statham vehicle he's playing a guy named uh, adam clay who lives on the property of a retired school teacher named Eloise Parker, and he just tends to bees there, and but Eloise is a sweet old lady that you know, falls for a fishing scheme, decides to kill herself, and that really upsets Adam, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to go, and I'm going to seek vengeance for her, and we learn that he has a set of skills that allows him to do that, because he worked as a some kind of secret agent that was also called a beekeeper for the government, and the, these beekeepers, they are very, very, very off book. They have all, all the skills in the world and they are there to basically keep America on track. Protect the hive. Protect the hive by protect any means. One. Yeah, protect the hive, the hive being, I guess, the country, society by any means necessary. 
Fred, I, 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 I've talked about movies that are in this subgenre with Daniel a bit more than you, uh, though this was a movie that I know you saw and enjoyed. I'm wondering, uh, where are you at generally on Jason Statham movies? Because I know, uh, in general, uh, Daniel's a little more in the tank for them. I think Wrath of Man was his favorite movie of 2021, uh, which I, I still don't know why, but it was. So we know. Actually, I, I, it was I, Come On, Come On. Uh, okay. Although, oh, okay. Right after. Right after. <laughs> Just you know, two very two movies that share a lot of thematic sensibilities there. Uh, you know, but uh, I, 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 Fred, I'm wondering, you know, uh, how how you generally feel about this type of movie, this kind of Jason Statham thing, and is there a certain vein in which you like, like these movies can operate that they really work for you? I actually really enjoy the guy, and I really mm-hmm. have ever since his uh, Guy Ritchie days, which I mean, he's kind of coming back to now. Uh, he made two movies with him fairly recently. Uh, I even like the one that came out last year that nobody really saw. Was it? Uh, it had a super long title. Uh, the Meg Operation to the Fortune, Trench. <laughs> no, Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. Yep, good uh, one. Good I, one. I, I wasn't really so much hot on that, but yeah. No, I, I mean, I still enjoyed that. And the thing about Jason Statham, what he is especially good at is that balancing act of silent Avenger with big muscles and just super angry face. And I think the second one is even more important than the first one. Because I think a lot of people can bulk up and like beat people up in movies. But he just makes it so believable that as soon as he steps into a room, you're just like, you guys need to run. Like, you need to get the <laughs> fuck out of here before he goes ham on you. And there's that wonderful scene like pretty early on where he walks into that room with all the computers with like two uh, canisters of gas in his hands. And I'm just like, why are you still sitting down? Like, <laughs> run, guys. Like, why does he have to do any kind of talking for you to realize how serious he is? So that's what I really enjoy about him. And I've seen a lot of his movies over the years, actually, where he's done a really good job with that kind of stuff. Um, all, also consistently one of the best parts of the Fast and Furious franchise these days. Mm. And yeah. the thing that I like about movies like that is it's always nice to get a bit of a palate cleanser in January. Because usually people are so busy catching up on awards, hopefuls. And that's what I've been doing these last few weeks. And I was very pleasantly surprised by the good reviews that this got. And yeah, it did not disappoint. Like, really well done, actually. What's funny that, like, I honestly, like, I, I have nothing against Jason Statham and I feel like I, I feel like I in theory enjoy his presence in things and then I like went back and because I'm not so big on him in the fast movies I like the first time he was a villain in them and I just personally think they lost the thread with that villain and that by mainly trying to make him not a villain uh, and it just like it, it threw a lot of things off for me in the fast movies and so there's like not a ton he's done in the last 10 years where it's like oh yeah I freaking love what he's doing there and like I, I didn't dislike him in Wrath of Man or anything I just did not share anywhere near the same level of affection for Daniel. That movie's fine to me. It, it just wasn't on the, on the level. So I just, by like talking about the movie with Daniel so much, I just like probably just was like, man, I, I'm just not big on that compared to him. So I like went back and looked and like the last time I was like, oh yeah, I like I, I thoroughly like enjoyed, like, uh, and I didn't even really love the movie necessarily, but like, I, I loved what he did in Spy. Like I just thought he was the best part of Spy and like just having his regular demeanor placed in a movie like that. But aside from that, there hasn't been like a Jason Statham movie where like he was like the star of it that like I've like like unabashedly enjoyed in like a really long time. Like I mean, I'm talking like back to like not I don't the know. Meg? I, I'm not a big Meg guy. I watched the Meg for the See, first time. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the Meg. I am <laughs> a far bigger fan of the Meg too. But the thing is with Jason Statham is it, he just feels he feels omnipresent in my life, and I don't know if I've like loved a, <laughs> loved a movie where God, he is like. I wish I, he felt. I wish he felt omnipresent <laughs> in my life. Omnipresent in movies to me, and like I don't know if he's, I've ever liked the movie he really starred in since like The Transporter over 20 years ago. You know. Well, I mean, for me, I've got Blitz. I've got Redemption. I need, AK, I need to see Blitz. I need to see, I need to see Blitz and Crank. I've never seen any yeah, of these. You're talking about. I think 
Nick Crank is excellent. Uh, Mechanic Resurrect. The thing is with Jason Statham is that he is just so goddamn good at being Jason Statham. Like, he is... I, I don't know. I can't really put my finger on the exact quality, but like Fred said, like, the sort of, like, the roughness, the toughness that he kind of exudes when he walks into a scene. He can never be anything else but Jason Statham, you know? You can't expect that he's going to do a turn like, I don't know, Daniel Craig and Logan Lucky. What he can do is is be the British tough guy. He can be the man of few words, the man who with a scowl just makes you want to run for the hills as quickly as possible. And so he kind of just leans into that in pretty much every one of his movies. And I think that even in his bad movies, he is usually coming off scot-free. Like, he is always great. So, yeah, that was what was exciting me about The Beekeeper. Not only that it was him, but it was David Ayer, who is a director who I have a lot of affinity for. Yeah, not everything he's done is great. Um, but I think that he's a guy who actually does have a command of his craft. He has a very particular vision of the world. Uh, one that I think many people would say not a very pleasant vision of the world, a very reactionary, conservative vision of the world. And I'd agree. But uh, hey, look, to these days, I'm, I'm taking that sort of kind of directorial vision wherever I can get it. So they seemed like a match made in heaven. And I, yeah, I, I love The Beekeeper. It's great. Like, I've now seen it twice. I could see it, like, a five more times, uh, six, seven. This is a rewatchable for me. This this is so much fun. I think it helps Statham a lot that he sort of got a start in these Guy Ritchie movies. Because even though he plays these roles largely straight, there's just such a fun undercurrent of humor in his line delivery. Where it's just like, yeah, he sounds tough. He sounds badass. But it always just kind of makes you smile because, you know, okay... Shit's about to go down now. And when he says these things sounding all serious, like it it just works in a way that a lot of these types of actors cannot pull off. So that makes him unique, I think, in this particular craft. Which I think speaks to like his role in Spy, which I have not seen, but I've heard he is very good in it because he actually does have like the comic timing down, even though he's just operating within his limited window as an actor. He he, he and Rose Byrne are so much more memorable in that movie than uh, Melissa McCarthy. Like they, it's just huh. they're just great side performances in that movie. I, it's funny because like I, I I swore to Daniel Fred before we started doing this, I like I try and avoid like talking about the plot that much of either of these, or especially Argyle though, which I mean I. Totally him wasn't going to be a problem but it's like we haven't really talked about that much of it with respect to the beekeeper but i'm wondering given what we're talking about what we love about these movies and how Statham delivers in it like is the plot like just kind of inessential to you or do you think they like they, they made it just coherent enough that it, it like allows the movie to work even better for you than it otherwise would daniel well i think that it is important um mm-hmm. so you know me i watch a lot of action stuff especially a lot of action thrillers of the revenge thrillers um most of them kind of dtv stuff ruthless uh, i'm looking through my list now fast charlie rise of the foot soldier vengeance you know the fifth movie in like a six movie series the bricklayer earlier this year and as much as i enjoy watching these a lot of these just feel very disposable And I think a large part of that goes to, yeah, the lack of direction, you know, the lack of a clear, consistent vision. Like, these are cheap movies that are kind of just kind of pumped out, usually have some money laundering operations themselves (laughs) going on in the background. But also, I think that the structure of a revenge story can do a lot for, like, making it kind of rise above the pack. Here... It's a pretty basic structure, like every John Wick clone that's come out in the past 10 years. He cares about this lady. She dies. He goes at like a bull in a china shop 
on a warpath, dismantling whatever he comes across in his quest for revenge. There's a simplicity to that kind of narrative that does require a kind of deft touch to make it not just feel like fluff. And uh, I think that this movie succeeds with that like incredibly well, which is very, very surprising to me because I don't know if you saw, but the writer of this movie, Kurt frickin' Wimmer. <laughs> Kurt Wimmer, whose last movie, I don't know, Fred, you saw Expendables 4, right? No, actually. I've seen the first three, but I decided not to see the fourth one. The buzz around that know, one was. Good bit. call, because that is one of the worst movies I saw last year. It is truly horrendous. A lot of that is on Kurt Wimmer's back. It's a horribly written and structured movie but this one has an elegance to it you know like you've got him doing the bull in a china shop thing you have the uh the villains that are a lot of time is spent fleshing out that kind of side of the world and you even have these you know these these buddy cops kind of following along on his in his wake kind of doing color commentary and i think those three parts of the script actually act in concert really really well Realize I've actually only, I know he's been around for a long time, and it's kind of, I, I have an idea of the kind of movies that Kurt Wimmer writes, but I actually have only ever seen before this one. The only one I'd ever actually seen was The Recruit. Somehow I've just like missed all of these other ones. Yeah. Really? You never got around to Equilibrium? I, I was about to ask. Yeah, that's the one that I've seen that I usually associate him with. I have not seen that one, to be honest with you. I've really? only seen a hand. I've, yeah, I know. That's a big omission for the action guy, but I've honestly, say, yeah. I've only seen like a handful of his stuff. Um, but I know him by reputation, which is not a sterling one. We'll no, say the guy stays having a job, though. You know, it's just funny if you like look at his. I mean, over the last twenty five years or whatever, like, he's, oh yeah, he's a hack. I mean, he he gets work. Well, I mean, if you know the fifteenth times to try, so I mean, fifteenth times a charm, yeah. But I do think that air is a large part of it. We were talking about you know what makes Argyle not work, and I was thinking about that a lot as I rewatched the Beekeeper. The Beekeeper also is kind of tongue in cheek. You know, there's a lot of like knowing sort of like the kind of conventions of this kind but of it, movie. But it knows what it wants to do for the most part. Yeah. Compared yeah, there's to a the lot of fu- exactly. where it's like the only time I'd say that, like, maybe the beekeeper goes a little astray in its plotting is like the stuff with the daughter. Don't think they really had the greatest grasp of what that character is about. She like starts out the movie just kind of thinking that Clay is like a, a murderer and then figures out that he isn't like five minutes later. You know, wants to track him down when he finds out she's, he's on his warpath like the rest of the movie. But I'm not really all that clear like why they seem to care that much or what they're going to do once they catch him. Because like, you know. I actually will push back on that. Mm. They She knows that he's kind of after the same people she is. And he's making more headway than her, than like she has this entire. She doc- seems she like, seems more like more concerned with stopping him than like stopping the other people, I guess. Because I guess maybe just she wants to keep, take him alive. I guess I don't. But like it's just- the thing that bothered me about that plot line, especially, is that I was never fully clear on where she got her information from because she seemed incredibly well informed by a certain point in the movie about what the beekeeper organization was all about and what his specific role in that well, is. that's because she found the beekeeping book. <laughs> I must have missed that scene. When, when was that? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, so this is one of the things that makes me... I understand what you guys are saying about the structure, like how she doesn't really quite fit in. I am willing to ignore that because, truthfully, I just found those characters very fun to hang out with um, because, like, they offer this kind of 
commentary on the events of the movie, like in the, kind of the same way as um, I, I, have you guys seen um, a Burn After Reading? Yes. You know those scenes where like J.K. Simmons is being handed like reports on the events of the movie, and he's oh, like, yeah. and it's kind of like kind of a restructuring, like a let the audience know, all right, this is where we're at right now. Um, that's kind of what they function as here, except also as like a buddy cop duo. They have a lot of funny lines, and at one point. A stroke of brilliance, I gotta say, chef's kiss to Kurt Wimmer. They go to one of his see the the crime scenes that you know Jason Statham has torn through, and they find like a book on beekeeping that uh one of the other beekeepers that was sent to kill him had left behind. And so the rest of the movie, she's just flipping through this um, book on beekeeping and offering like bee trivia. Uh, uh, the first the first line she says is like, hey, you know, bees are interesting little shits. And I, at one point she's reading from the book. She's like, here's another bit of bee trivia. And her partner's like, thank fuck, you know, sarcastically. And I thought that they had a very good rapport. And I think this is one of those things where like moments like those could read as sort of like, very self-aware, cutesy, like a Matthew Vaughn movie. But I think that the steady hand of David Ayer in those scenes, like he's directing these as like jokes, sure, but jokes that are like within a world where like this violence has actual weight. You know, the kind of jokes that you'd make with a coworker versus like the centerpiece of like a post-ironic blockbuster. I think that there is a very clear difference in approach. Yeah, I, I do think the film loses the plot a little bit in the second half. And what I mean by that is, it's very similar to what my issue is with the John Wick movies. So I really like the first one because the stakes were very distinctly personal and you know exactly why he was in this fight. And as much as I enjoy the action choreography and um, that whole world building that they do in the John Wick movies... I felt like it's kind of gotten to a point by the third and the fourth movie where his motivations become increasingly abstract, where people just keep coming after him and he just really, um, most of his motivations boil down simply to survival. And I think the beekeeper kind of runs into a similar issue in the second half here where he gets to a point where he takes care of the people that specifically wronged the old lady that killed herself. And then he just kind of keeps going and keeps going up the ladder and once you get to that escalation of stakes, more and more people get involved and more and more interested parties become active in this. And that's where I became a little bit confused about who was specifically working for whom and what everybody's specific goal was. Because there is a point in time where the Secret Service is involved, the FBI is involved, there's like a private security team hired by Jeremy Irons' character that's involved. And it just kind of got to a point where all of them sort of interact with each other and get in each other's way. And I couldn't quite tell anymore, okay, who are these people specifically there for and what is it they're trying to achieve? Wait, like, this, isn't I, major, I, this isn't major stuff, but there were like certain scenes. Like one of the best examples was uh, there was a phone call that one of the private security guys makes at one point to get confirmation that he is really supposed to be in there trying to protect people. And then Josh Hutchinson's character is like, no, you're not supposed to be there. Get out of there. You're bothering these people. And I was just like, wait, I, I thought he hired these people to be there to protect these guys. Oh, no, wait, that was Jeremy Irons. So there were a few moments where I just kind of struggled to keep everything straight because there were just too many different strands to try and keep together, if that makes any sense. Different strokes, because I actually found it to be very, very refreshingly clear. Like, the fact is that I think it's part of it is that, you know, Jason Statham kind of just kills whoever comes his way. So every new face is just another 
yeah. another another person to go through the uh, you know Cockney meat grinder that is uh, Jason Statham. I, I didn't have any real problem keeping track of these people. That kind of stuff that Fred was talking about, like, often does bother me in movies like this, where there's just too many different entities and I can't tell, like, who's doing what. And I, I just thought it was interesting that, like, I didn't get that bogged down in that side of it this time. I just kind of, like, accepted that, like, hey, most of the government's kind of in on this to some extent, but, like, he has gone rogue and maybe he used to, they, they had some control over this program, but they have no control over him. He's going after them. And I I, I was actually kind of just able to accept that. And I, I get you're, I get what you're saying, Fred. It didn't ruin the movie for you at all. It was just a, it was a thing that no, you might have no. bumped up against a little bit. But like, I mean, I, I didn't really ever like feel lost in all that, even if I don't disagree that like, yeah, if you try and parse it, maybe not going to like make it 100 percent sense. I do think that a big part of that is that there is like a very clear emotional through line. I mean, you can argue about how how far that that really goes. But the fact is, you know, in the two scenes that she has, that old lady at the beginning, charming, charming woman. You don't like seeing somebody like that being taken advantage of. Even like the scene where like she's being like bilked by like the guys in the call center. It is kind of painful to watch. And, you know, you get this uh, this monologue by Jason Statham about how elder abuse is wrong, which I'm like, yes, brave, woke king standing up against elder abuse. Love to see it. And uh, that provides enough emotional foundation to support as as extraneous and as as up the ladder as, you know, Statham goes as far removed as he is from that initial inciting incident. I think you're still on board. Kind of the same way with John Wick in that first movie with the puppy. Yeah, like I said, in the first movie, yes. But with John Wick, like with each like successive sequel, it kind of got more and more abstract about tying yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair with John Wick, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and the beekeeper was to a smaller degree because obviously the movie isn't even two hours long. So obviously, yeah. you're right. Like there is still that initial motivation there. But the further you go up the food chain, the more removed you get from that initial motivation and it just didn't feel quite as personal anymore and things became just a little bit too spread out for my taste like i said minor issue but just something i did notice during the last 30 minutes fair but that being said i mean we're talking about all the twists in argyle and how they don't they don't matter the moment like she hands over the phone and somebody calls her madam president there's like a scare chord that happens i cheered in the theater i was like yes that's what i want to see jason statham takes out the president and that's where i think we can talk a little bit about this movie's politics. This is a very black-billed movie. Like, or I would argue not black-billed enough. It's very kind of Trumpian, very like, I guess, uh, almost QAnon adjacent. You know, like, you don't think it's a little progressive in that it, like, you know, it's going to criticize the dark money in politics? Um, Well, it is, but it's doing so from, I think, a very, <sighs> here's the thing. It doesn't go far enough. Like, I think that the thing is, we know that David Ayer is a right-leaning director. Um, You can see that from, I don't know, the things that he's done. And I kind of wish that it even embraced that a little bit more. This kind of like deep state conspiracy stuff. Um, Because ultimately, hey, look, like I said, it's a worldview. I'm so tired. Like we talked about in the past, like 2023 was defined by movies that were very establishment friendly. And uh, would often, like, I, if not outright defend it, then, like, usurp, like, uh, rhetoric of anti-establishment politics in order to reinforce itself. 
And this movie, ultimately, I was disappointed by the fact that it ended up being that also. So the idea is that Jason Statham becomes like a queen killer. Like he is a beekeeper. He defends the hive, which is, yeah, a very conservative vision. Like the idea is that society as it exists right now is totally fine. And then occasionally things happen to rock the boat and he, the beekeepers exist to kind of go fix them. And that's inherently a conservative vision of the world. As the film develops, it seems like he's about to go to the very, very top of society in order to remove the rot. And I'm like, all right, sweet. Awesome. He's going to take out the deep state. He's going to drain the swamp. I'm here for it. Let's go. And ultimately, at the very, very end, the film reveals that, like, the president actually isn't in on this evil conspiracy, that, like, it was in service of her, but it was done totally unknowingly, because at the end of the day, the movie doesn't want to present a vision of the world in which it is kind of rotten to its core, you know? I've seen, I've seen, that, I've found, seen that criticism a couple of places. Yeah, and I just wish that the movie kind of pushed on further, even if it was from a right-wing perspective, because at least then it'd have, like, real teeth. Um, so what you're saying is that the villain of the movie isn't, in fact, Donald Trump Jr., it's Hunter Biden, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I kind of wish that it, I, I kind of wish that the villain was Joe Biden, you know? I kind of wish that that's, I kind of wish that that was the case. Like, yeah, sure. I wouldn't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that worldview. Well, I, I kind of do. I don't like Joe Biden, but like for different reasons. Fred, more embarrassing for me than uh, falling asleep in a movie as good as The Zone of Interest is that I fell asleep during the to be or not to be line. Like with probably like, just, oh. the, just like the, 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 like the five minutes and like it, literally just for like five minutes. I even messaged January after me. He was like, I fell asleep at this point. I woke up at this point. Did I miss it? And he's like, yeah. Like it was literally like five minutes and I just happened to miss it. Did you, did you know that line was coming beforehand? And if not, what was your reaction in the theater? No, I knew it was coming. And oh, I, read, okay. like, the first two parag- and, yeah. I read like the first two paragraphs of David Ehrlich's review on Letterboxd uh, and he dropped that spoiler yeah. in there. I knew it was going to be in there. Of course, like the entire movie is just <laughs> full of B puns. So how can you miss on the mother of them all? <laughs> yeah. So, I, I enjoyed that though. I mean, you're kind of leaning into the gimmick and, Again, like we were talking about how the humor in Argyle is such a failure. Like this is the kind of movie that knows exactly what it is. It knows what viewers expect from it. And when you have a premise as silly as the main character being the beekeeper who's protecting the hive, of course you're going to lean into that and actually deliver a lot of these uh, kind of dad jokes. Because, yeah, a lot of dudes that are going to watch this are going to be dads who enjoy that kind of humor. So Mm. I appreciated that they knew what the target audience was going to look like and might as well embrace it. And I do emphasize that I, I, I do think that like the kind of steady hand of air was responsible for selling the kind of humor because I could, I could easily see a world where like, you know, a lot of these jokes kind of just make me sigh and sink into my chair, you know? <laughs> um, but like, you know, when you have, but, and yeah. also like the kind of performances, like, you know, Jeremy Irons, at one point he's yelling at uh, Joss Hutcherson and he's like, you know, he, he says something that gets a rise out of him. And the way that he responds is like, oh, sit down. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and, and yeah, the, the actors also kind of know what to bring to their performances. Like the fucking South African mercenary, <laughs> uh, so much fun. And like, that's the thing in the world building, like, yeah, he's this guy, this mercenary who apparently apparently has killed like a beekeeper in the past, but he lost a leg through it. Like that's the kind of character detail that sets this movie apart from like any number of anonymous sort of like revenge thrillers. Side note, 
Lazarus, the um, South African mercenary, played by Taylor James, who, I don't know, Jernivor, you familiar with him? Not, no. Okay, well, I think you are, because he played Samson in the best superhero movie that came out in 2018, Samson. I mean, I've not seen Samson, though. Oh, I thought you did. I thought that we no, I, 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 I just gave you shit because, like, I just just because, like, I love Black Panther that much when it came out. So I was. Yeah, just, I mean, hey, I'm telling you. I, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess, I can't really give you shit for that opinion until I have seen Samson. So yeah, I mean, hey, Taylor James, great in the movie. He's a better Samson than Chadwick Boseman is a Black Panther. Jesus. <laughs> in regards to the action, good stuff. Well shot, well photographed. David Ayer knows his way around an action scene. And the action director for this movie is a name that you know very well at this point, Jeremy Marinus. Yeah, so it's your boys at 87 North, right? Yeah, like I don't know if 87 North itself was like involved in the production, but he's like one of the 87 North's guys. So, you know, you got to assume. Actually, no, I'm sorry. 87, I think 11. He's They with. go by both. The difference. Well, here's the thing. 87 North. David Leach, 8711, Chad Stileski. Mm. Did not realize that, but that's that's how it goes. But, you know, it's it's good action. I think that all the last kind of brawl between um, Jason Statham and Taylor James, really, really good stuff. Like, using the environment, using the capabilities of both actors and those characters. Like, at one point, <laughs> the guy, the guy's, like, fake legs gets ripped off. Like, and that's, that's so good. Like, I just love that the fight feels like something that could only exist within this movie that's what you want to see well i, I want to shout out the bridge scene that that was a pretty fun way to kill someone so yeah <laughs> hands down yeah and that who's that actor uh the oh the guy that played the guy running the call center yeah 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 he did that role very well i'll, I'll give yeah, him he's so fun yeah. so fun uh i think his name is hold on i've got it right here david witz yeah 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 him? it was no and i don't know where he's what he's done before but i was like oh man that guy that role fit that guy like a cool yeah what i will say who i was very disappointed with was that other beekeeper that they introduced at one point at the gas station where i'm like okay super badass another beekeeper comes after him now and they're going to be battling throughout the entire movie this is going to be so much fun and again they only picked the best for this program right and she dies within like two minutes. See, like, I like wow. that. Wow, like he was just—he's just so much better well, than so, everybody so, else. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I love that. So, Daniel, I love so, that. Awesome, but it so, was so well, disappointing. So, Daniel, it doesn't bother you like that? Like, Statham has like no resistance up until he faces Samson, basically. Yeah, it doesn't really. I don't really mind. Yeah. Like the a whole idea of the character is that he's just you know this badass motherfucker. He's this—he's a dangerous force, you know. Um, and I think that it could not work if like the world around him, I didn't enjoy being in, but I did enjoy, like, I I think that with a role like this, it's very important that you set up like the adversaries just as much, or I think even more important than in like a movie where like, you know, the character has like an actual inner self, Joss Hutcherson as like the kind of like tech bro billionaire, very good. Jeremy Irons as the guy who kind of has to corral him fucking great i even liked the who played the president in this uh do i know her from something uh i i i didn't really recognize her myself Uh, i know her from doctor she was a doctor who i don't know if you guys watched Mm. that oh wait who was she in doctor who uh she is the head of unit (laughs) oh yeah yeah she's a little weird for like such a fundamentally british character to play the american president but uh, that is funny yeah yeah i'm pretty sure vanessa yeah vanessa redgrave is her mom so big. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no, like it, like the moments like when she goes to meet is her she? son. I don't know if she is actually. I think I looked that up. I don't know if she's actually. Really... Maybe it's her aunt, but she's definitely part of that family. 
Okay. Mm. But like, yeah, like moments where like she goes to meet Joss Hutcherson, they're talking like, you know, for a little bit and she's like, she goes to smoke a cigarette and she only takes like a couple puffs and you realize that like she's only taking a couple puffs because she's the president of the United States and she can't go around smelling like cigarette smoke. Very <laughs> lived in moment that mm. I don't know that another director would have that sort of forethought. And yeah, like when you have such a careful sort of attention to detail in the world around them, it goes such a long way. I don't know if the president character necessarily, I don't, I don't even know if I necessarily thought of her as necessarily being that lived in. I, I actually kind of agree with you that I thought maybe it, it didn't need to let her off the hook like it did at the end. But I don't know. It gets really busy, but like, it just, again, I think it, I think like, I, I guess Air gets a lot of credit for it on, on top of Wimmer to some extent, but like, I just think it has, it has such a, it's, it's just the antithesis in some ways of Argyle. Like it just had such a clear vision of what it wanted to be. I, I just think they really they really nailed it and like and again and I don't think it's as simple as the R rating I think like Daniel's already alluded to the talent involved it just like it just got a lot of the action stuff right in a way that like a lot of the action in that movie even though I saw it like almost a full three weeks before I saw Argyle I think like a lot of the action in that movie really stuck with me in a way that just like nothing in Argyle did and I saw Argyle three days ago uh it it's just you know I mean Statham Air the Sun people I think they all I think they all deserve credit for like you know um, be, being able to execute it like they did. No, no, Daniel. Any other any other thoughts on the beekeeper that you want to talk about? There's like a a line at the beginning where, like, you know, in the phone call with the old lady, the kind of smarmy call center guy says, "Like, hey, no, I got kids." And then he turns the phone on mute. And he goes, "I don't got no fucking kids." <laughs> <laughs> Just made me laugh. There's so many stray lines like that that got a laugh out of me. The daughter character, when the barn is like burnt to the ground, she looks at the wreckage and she says, I lost my virginity in that barn. <laughs> like, you know, and it's so matter of fact that it just made me laugh. Just a very funny movie, a very fun movie. Exactly what I wanted out of January. I, I gave it like a four when I saw it. And I'm like, I should bump that up. Like that is this is this is so much fun. Yeah, I wonder, like, I, I haven't actually like written it. I haven't written anything on it yet because, again, I'm bad at Letterboxd these days. But like. I feel like I'll be curious to see like in a month if that stuff with the daughter actually bothers me at all. You know, like it might be the kind of thing where it's just like I, that kind of dissipates your memory and I think about the good stuff. And at that point, I might owe it more than four stars as well. But it, it's getting at least four as of now. I'm, I'm with you on that. Fred, any other final thoughts on The Beekeeper? Anybody here want to take a guess how much it costs to make this movie? I I, I, I don't know. It, it wasn't on Wikipedia. So I'm curious. I'm going to guess 50 million. I'll say 60. So the number I found is 35. <laughs> so that's what it God, incredible of Argyle's budget. David Ayer is back, Daniel. He's, he's back. back, baby. Uh, yep. I mean, he's been here for years. Actually, I say that I did not see the tax collector. Um, I, I I owe it to him to do so. I haven't even seen Fury. Fury saw it for a war movie, though. It's like you know, it's you gotta you gotta deal with a lot of Shia LaBeouf going on in there. I mean, hey, I mean the tax collector. Well, same in the tax collector. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, if you're gonna see the tax collector, I think one of the reasons I didn't watch it was I like, well, I already have the debt collector. You know, the Scott Atkins movie. So you know, what's the point? I think the point is well taken, Fred. It's just like you know, you watch something like Argyle and like a lot of other stuff these days, and it's just you don't know where the money went. And this is pretty cool that like I would have if you told me that it took cost almost twice as much as what it actually did. If it really was 35 to do this, I would have been like, 
fair and they did a good job of it. And so it's pretty awesome that they could make something that just like, I mean, it looks fine. I mean, it's not, you yeah, know. it looks, I think it looks really good, especially again, like I'm so used to seeing these made for like a million dollars in the DTV realm, mm-hmm. but you know, you get looked like, you know, in that little uh, predator set piece where like uh, he's kind of going through the barn, killing people one by one. And That's it's good, like man, bathed in this yellow light, you know, he's making the most out of a location that could otherwise feel very humdrum. I mean, hats off if it was actually 35 million. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big set they got to use in the last set piece with that wherever the president set. Yeah, going off. through the villa and shit. Yeah, so uh, you know, just uh, yeah, well done to all involved. I'm, I appreciate that you uh, got that on the record here, Fred. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I think I don't, I don't know exactly when we'll be putting this out. It might, it might be leaving theaters by then. But I assume anyone, I, I assume most people that wanted to see this movie already saw it. So, but like you know, on the off chance that you know you have some other friends, spread the word. We need we need to support David Ayer. Uh, you know, it'd be cool if he can uh, get back on track to making really good movies. I'm waiting for Beekeeper 2, The Hornet, or something like that. Well, it's I want funny. That. Like, I mean, you could easily, easily, like, justify that, I think. And, like, they left the door open for that. Though I, I will also say, though, I saw the ending coming from a mile away. Where like she's been hunting him all the whole time, and then like is like, all right, I'll I'll, I'll let this guy go as a yeah kind of, like, yeah I agree I, I agree mean, don't care don't yeah, care this I is know. how you do it but, but, <laughs> but, you but, earned but, that sure it's fine but like I mean I I I uh, I, I, I I just wanted to kind of note that like I, I kind of saw that that was where I was going but like if yeah it's fine again doesn't doesn't ruin anything for me and they left the door open for him to go do some other beekeeping elsewhere and uh, be fine but it's funny because I was listening to like some of the other podcasts and stuff on Argyle and people were talking about oh yeah this was like them, them wanting to start their own shared universe I'm like the fuck would you make a universe out of argyle like i couldn't even like wrap my head around that and it just makes so much more sense for something like the beekeeper he, he could get into some other shit so much so easily that that could just like justify its own story in another in, in some other kind of action movie and i'd be there for it yeah daniel we'll get you hooked on the mcu again next year when they make uh, ant-man and the wasp and the beekeeper that's oh, my pitch. Fucking, oh my god i, I would <laughs> die like absolutely 100 percent. i'll be back you and know the, <laughs> the, the beekeeper will return in the avengers I'm I'm going to be cheering in the theater. I'm going to be cheering. All right, Daniel, anything else you'd like to plug for the listeners before we sign off as anything you've been watching recently? Um, well, I, to keep things on theme, how about I plug Honeyland? Did you ever get around to that? <laughs> I didn't. Honey, did it, did it <laughs> Honeyland? Yeah. yeah, it's totally similar vibes to this. Uh, didn't oh, Honeyland right. get like, didn't Honeyland get like a cinematography nomination too or something? Or, or no, maybe it's just foreign, maybe it's just foreign language and documentary. I did get foreign. Yeah, I did get foreign yeah, okay. language. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But like Honeyland, it was a, a North Macedonian film about just these nomadic keepers. I expected it to be like a quaint sort of like Sundancey documentary. And instead it's a very uh, meditative, I guess, uh, kind of slow cinema approach. Like it's just getting into the lives of these people as they kind of struggle as these, this sort of like way of life is dying out. Um, I thought it was really beautiful. Honestly, I was surprised by how taken I was with it. This was years ago when I saw it, when I was far less uh, appreciative of this kind of cinema and I was just, I was just really struck by it. So high rec- highly recommend that. I also would like to recommend uh, a book because I started reading again. Um, I've re- started reading the Powder Mage trilogy, which is set in a sort of analog of Napoleonic Europe, where one country has usurped the king and has launched a war against another country. It's set in this very interesting world where like magic exists, sure, but there's also a bunch of people with like random little powers that 
don't really amount to much. And there's also these powder mages who can manipulate black powder. They can snort it and become super strong or use it to like snipe people from miles away. And I thought it was a very interesting sort of, as opposed to like all the sort of like pseudo medieval fantasy that, you know, is very, very common. I thought this was very interestingly grounded in this very tumultuous time in human history without ever feeling like it's like a one-to-one comparison, like something like the Poppy War books, which I was not a huge fan of. Really loved the world building. I found the characters very interesting. The prose is very kind of pulpy, which I really appreciate. I, I would highly recommend those. Uh, I'll say on Honeyland, I I, I, is it for, I remember enjoying it. I think I watched on Hulu at the time, can watch on Max right now. It was one of those things where I watched it, I was like, oh, wow, it's like, it's just cool they even found this story. Like, it's like interesting just for like the novelty of it that they like found that these people exist in 2019 or whatever. And it was just really <laughs> interesting for that, if nothing else. Or you can, you know, ponder the meaning of life like Daniel did also. The reason I thought I got nominated for cinematography was that it like actually won an ASC award for nonfiction, but also because of that, like was actually getting predicted in some by some Oscar prognosticators for cinematography at the time. That's why I kind of thought I remembered that. But um, yeah, obviously mm. it looks good. Uh, Fred, any other any recommendations from you at the moment? Yes, I've been on a lot over the past couple of weeks, so I've actually kind of exhausted my list of recommendations. Mm. I will pick up the thread, though, of um, Honeyland, which was, again, an Oscar nominee for Best Foreign Feature a few years ago. Uh, I'm going to see The Promised Land this weekend, uh, which I've been kind of interested in ever since it premiered in Venice last year. That is the Danish submission for the Best International Feature Oscar this year. Didn't get nominated, but it made the shortlist. Um, like I said, it was the Danish submission, so it obviously stars Mats Mikkelsen uh, <laughs> as a guy who uh, goes to a far-off remote uh, Danish territory, I believe it's in the 1800s, uh, and tries to settle the place. And uh, he runs into a whole bunch of problems with the landowners there, and things escalate and get violent. And it got really good reviews in Venice. It kind of sounds like one of those sort of meditative, traditional, historical epics that we don't really get a ton of anymore. Um, and Mats Mikkelsen being in it is usually a recommendation in itself, especially when he returns to his roots and stars in uh, Danish-speaking productions. So that should be coming out with a semi-limited release this week. Our indie theater in Nashville, the Belcourt, is getting it. And again, it got really good reviews, so I'm looking forward to watching that. That's uh, The Promised Land. Hmm. Okay, good recommendation. Like you, I have uh, done a lot of recording recently, so I'm running on recommendations myself. Uh, I'm out of movie ones, and then I recommended Mr. and Mrs. Smith yesterday. Uh, So I'll do the other Amazon series I've just started watching, which is uh, Lu Wong's Expats. It's like her Mm. first thing she's done since uh, The Farewell. It took, I mean, just a very project took forever to get made. And so... It's like I've only watched the first two episodes. I only three have come out so far. There's only six total. And it's like they filmed this thing in 2021. It just took forever to come out. But it's like, you know, it's about uh, literally that expats in Hong Kong set in 2014. And uh, this family, I know, is very well off. They're living in Hong Kong and living a very high class lifestyle. And there's some tragedy that befalls them. And uh, it's kind of examining like, you know, the people are what this tragedy, the effect, the effect it had on them within their family, but also uh, a lot of the people surrounding that are in their orbit. And I think it goes in some different directions to follow other side characters around around Hong Kong. And I, I, I can't say it's like, oh, my God, this is the best thing I've ever watched. But like it's enjoyable enough so far it has Nicole Kidman and then a lot of less familiar people. Include, but it has also has Jack Houston and uh, Soraya Blue, who people might recognize from other TV things. But like Nicole Kidman, you've seen play a sad, like rich white lady on TV, like, you know, several times in the last 
last five years all like, the time now yes yeah. like, it, it's like she i mean it's it's cool that like she found the time to go get an oscar nomination for being in the for being the ricardos before she like went back to just doing that again <laughs> it's like she can remind people that she could be like a movie star that gets oscar nominations but if she's gonna go back to like just start being a rich white lady that's in you know stressful circumstances on television so it's like again it's kind of familiar in that way but it's very well made and like i i mean the farewell was i think my second favorite movie of 2019 i'm pretty sure so it's like i want to support Wu wong so it's just it's a six episode commitment so not that hard to do and it's a, made with a lot of care even if it's like you know some heavy subject matter so i think it's worth checking out uh, i'm willing to try that out in spite of the fact that you know uh she hangs out with um barry jenkins <laughs> I th- I, yeah i mean you like the farewell didn't you so uh yeah i really loved the farewell yeah so, so i mean did, may, may, her taste in film is maybe better than her taste in men as far as you're concerned you know so <laughs> uh yeah so uh that, that's about it uh before we get out of here uh fred where can people find you on letterbox yes please do follow me on letterbox you can just search by my name fred kolb or my username which is frederick 0702 and daniel it's uh felonious funk correct Yep. And, uh, you know, I just dropped all my reviews out of Slam Dance, which, you know, good stuff. On, I did not sign up for uh, on Disappointment Media. Yes. Yeah. I, I did not. Um, I did not get any tickets to the Sundance because, I mean, it's all going to be in theaters. Uh, last year, I had picked up like a couple of Sundance movies and because uh, I, I thought like, oh, well, Divinity, that's not going to be released in theaters. That was released right next to me. So, you know, this year I was like, not going to spend the $20. I'll wait for it to get to me. Mm, yeah, uh, Fred plugged a lot of the Sundance stuff he saw last week. And I, I this is the first year I, ha- I hadn't done Sundance in, in a few years, though. I think we are going to do an episode on Suncoast, which Fred watched. But my friend Maya actually. Uh, he- yeah, that's on Hulu, right? It's going to be on Hulu in three days. And my friend, yeah, Friday. Yeah. My, 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 my friend Maya, who, you know, is usually here for all the Marvel and theater stuff, she actually like knows someone in the movie and went to like a, oh. some kind of QA screening or something like that. So uh, I think she, she reached out about doing that one. So we'll, we'll actually probably have an episode on that in the coming weeks on top of, you know, all the other Oscar stuff I'm trying to finish up still and, uh, and all that. So uh, as, as usual, I want to thank uh, Fred and Daniel for joining me. I want to thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you next time. I'm a gang being. I can spell all night long. Well, you know, we can make a plenty of honey, girl. When your man is not at home.